Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Hi everyone and welcome to this latest ITAM Review Podcast. Now joining me today, I have got an excellent lineup uh, from Licensed Fortress. I've got Michael Corey and Dean Bolton. And alongside them, from Beeman Muchmore, I have got Art Beeman and Joel Muchmore. So if you would like to do a quick introduction, uh, I'll start with you first, please, Michael. Sure. So uh, I'm Michael Corey, and just a little bit of background, I am a co-founder. Uh, uh, my background is I have 38 years of working with Oracle. I'm an Oracle Ace today. I'm a VMware V expert, a past Microsoft MVP. I'm the original Oracle Press author, and I've made my living helping customers be successful in the Oracle arena and also the Microsoft arena. Awesome. So you should have one or two things to, to teach us all in this podcast, no doubt. <laughs> um, and then over to you, Dean. Hello, all. My name is Dean Bolton, uh, co-founder and chief architect at License Fortress. Um, I'm a little bit shy on experience compared to Mike. I've only got 23 years uh, in the space, mainly oh. around Oracle. Um, uh, I am also an Oracle ace, a uh, VMware V expert. Um, and I'm uh, Oracle certified master, Exadata certified. Basically, I think I spend too much time on a keyboard under some fluorescent lights. <laughs> um, but for the past 10 years, uh, I've been helping customers around uh, enterprise architecture and software license compliance and optimization. Awesome. Quite the Oracle pedigree between Michael and Dean there. Um, and then uh, Art, back around sure. over to you. Yes, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to be here. I am Art Beeman, one of the founding partners of Beeman and Much More. Uh, for almost 40 years, I have been uh, uh, a trial lawyer having taken over 30 cases to jury verdict. Uh, my practice has been uh, exclusively in the intellectual property space. And since the formation with Joel Muchmore of Beeman and Muchmore a little over two years ago, um, we have dedicated ourselves to the micro specialty of representing licensees uh, who have issues with vendors, including audits in this uh, software space. Uh, Joel, I'll toss it to you. And this is Joel Muchmore. I'm the other founding partner of Beeman and Muchmore. I was uh, prior to founding Beeman and Muchmore, a, a 20 year corporate litigator from Big Law. And as Art said, about two years ago, we broke away from Big Law to set up our boutique shop that is focused almost exclusively on software licensing, uh, auditing, and all ancillary matters. Uh, can't be in software licensing if you don't have Oracle at the front and center, although we follow trends and have represented plenty of licensees in skirmishes with all the big vendors and all the uh, emerging small second-tier vendors as well. So uh, being able to focus our practice on that has given us a lot of things to look at and compare. 
Nice. So we've got some heavy hitters on this podcast. We've got, got decades of Oracle experience, decades of legal experience. And, you know, I don't think anyone will be surprised that Oracle and, uh, and legal experience have, have kind of gravitated towards each other. Um, I think most people listening will have had to one degree or another some experience with Oracle audits, contract negotiations, you know, ULA um, extractions, etc. So, um, so yeah, I think we're in for a, a great podcast today. Um, now, to get things started, we've we've got a kind of uh, a question slash opinion where I, I think we can begin, and that is really um, the statement that the traditional approach to ITAM is no longer good enough. And of course, everyone's got a slightly different version of what traditional ITAM is, and everyone's got a slightly different version of where ITAM is going. But I think everyone can agree on, you know, sort of eighty percent of, of the the core tenets. So. Michael, I'll start with you. Um, so the, the statement, traditional approach to ITAM is no longer good enough. Um, do you agree? And um, if, if so, can you tell us more about it? Sure. So th- I think it helps to have a baseline. So historically, ITAM, simply the traditional approach was you got an audit notice and you scrambled to say, oh, my God, I need some help. Uh, the vendor's going to come in and we've got to figure out what's going on here. And you would reach out and you would either settle on a lawyer Uh, Many times these lawyers knew nothing about software license consulting. That's not really what they focused on. Or you would find somebody who specialized in helping customers through the audit process. These were typically people that were trained by the vendors themselves, and they recognized an opportunity to make money. Uh, Now, clearly understand that if they were trained by the vendor, they had the vendor's perspective on the audit. Many times these licensed consultants were very aligned with the vendors themselves because they came from those vendors. And so they made money off the licenses they sold you. They made money off the advice they gave you. They walked you through the audit process. Hopefully they kept the bill down. You walked away feeling okay about it. And then they would say to you, you know what? You need an annual software license compliance audit so I can come in every year. So the next time you get audited, there's not this big bill of the surprise happening. And that's really how the industry worked. And in fact, the audit process was almost generally people respectful. And then something changed. The vendors realized there was a lot of revenue to be made. And vendors, depending on where you're on the spectrum, Oracle and IBM being on the aggressive side, Microsoft probably being known for doing the most odds of anybody, but not as aggressive. But they recognized that the audit wasn't about compliance. It was about revenue. And that became a game changer because one thing these vendors are all good about is generating revenue and how and finding new ways to do that. And I would say that's the traditional approach to uh, ITM. And once in a while, the vendor had a SAM tool, which was great if they were being proactive. Anything anybody wants to add to that? Well, Mike, I just think that your point about the identification of, of uh, uh, audits as being a potential revenue stream for the vendors is critical here because it goes to perspective on an asset. And I think a good comparison is what we saw in the patent world a few decades back, where at one time a patent was 
intimately associated and almost exclusively associated with whoever was practicing the invention and it was tied into their business. And then someone came along and said, wait a minute, we can just make revenue on the paper itself. And then you had the so-called patent troll phenomenon where the patents are collected, curated and asserted and they really had nothing to do with the original uh, purpose, which of course is the protection of innovation. The paper itself, in that instance, the patent became a source of revenue. And here in this space, the paper itself, the contracts, and believe me, that's easier said than done when you're talking about the contracts in this space, were identified as a potential source of, of revenue. And to your point, Mike, it changed everything. And I think from my side on that point, I remember during the first year of COVID, so at some point in 2020, one of the um, sort of industry analyst companies, um, I can't remember which one it was, so I, I, won't, I won't say any names in case I get it wrong, but one of them released a report about the software publishers and how COVID was impacting their revenues, etc., and there was a, a recommendation in there that they increase audits because it was a, a recognized revenue generation mechanism. You know, you already had your customer base. It wasn't very expensive to do. And you were you know, highly likely to get almost free money out of those engagements. So that was probably the most public I've seen that um that that's spoken about i don't know if it should have been um but i, I think that was kind of yeah proof of, of what you both said there that it's a, a great way for them to to earn some extra cash and, and by and, the way using a term that dean would say in the decade that we've been helping customers we've yet to find a customer 100 percent software compliant and now we're going into a recession where customers are going to be really watching their spending and the companies are gonna have a dilemma, right? A company like Oracle doesn't have organic growth, so it's acquiring companies as a way to grow, but even that is going, oh, can only take them so far. Or a company like Microsoft, and they're gonna do this math, and they're gonna say, oh, if I increase my software auditing, I'm gonna generate more revenue. And in fact, you're seeing companies go to third-party companies being authorized to do audits. So it's just gonna accelerate this trend even more. And in fact, a survey that we recently did, that we haven't published yet, is showing that during COVID, audits went up even higher and we expect that trend to continue even more. Wow, so audits increased during COVID. Um, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen at the ITAM Review, um, when we do our conferences and things, um, many more of, of the smaller tier two, even tier three vendors that have never been on the radar before, it seems to be trickling down as a way of, you know, if, if you've not sold so well and you need to inject some, some new revenue, audits seem to have, um, have become the, the best way to do it. So, so yeah, I, I think... I speak to some people who say the audits are on the way out. No one needs to worry about audits anymore because, you know, you know and then they'll say, I think they'll talk about cloud, they'll talk about digital transformation, trusted advisors, etc. Um, and that's why end users, you know, they can forget about audits. I don't believe that. And I think already um, I'm getting the sense that <laughs> neither do you. 
Um, so, so for organisations who are, you know, maybe being told that by by certain organisations, maybe internally, you know, the the leadership are, are coming to believe the audits are on, on the way out. Uh, what would you recommend? You know, that the IT asset manager does uh, to, to combat that internally. I mean, I think what I would start with is. <clears throat> If, if anybody's under the illusion that vendors are going to give up revenue, they are sadly mistaken. Now, how they protect it is, is changing, um, but the end goal for that is to keep the revenue increasing. And especially with the public vendors who have quarterly reports, they have to keep hitting those numbers. They will be coming up with ways to do that. What we've seen, though, is, is correct. The traditional audit sometimes is changing with these digital transformations. All that is, though, is um, the, the rules of engagement have changed. So oftentimes, I can think of one example very easily where a customer had moved their on-premise to a SaaS offering. Um, they, they felt very good about it. They thought it was very well-defined. Um, well, two problems came up for them after they made that move. Uh, one was, apparently, as they grew, they went past the threshold that they weren't aware of. And so their costs went up. Uh, over that threshold. Second part of it was um, the metrics were changed on them. And so what they had purchased, they thought it covered all of these different things. Um, and then the vendor decided after a couple of years that uh, one of the metrics was, was different and that put them into a new tier as well. And so it wasn't an official audit that way, but the customer still had to deal with these same issues, right? The, the contracts were very important, the legal terms were there, and then they also had the problem of, of being locked in, right? It wasn't a very easy thing to, to extricate themselves from SaaS, even if they wanted to. So the transformation is, is there, there are different options there. The audit might be a little different, um, but I think that's more of a change in, in name than in practice. Right. Uh, I, 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 I will throw in. Go ahead, Joel, please. Go ahead. No, please. I, I was just gonna throw in that the, uh, the audit platform is just too convenient and too easy for any uh, uh, vendors to give up on. It's written into the contract. There are contractual obligations to cooperate with it. There are termination provisions, and it is such a well-oiled machine that can knock licensees into paying attention. Uh, what might not work outside of the audit context, Oracle and other vendors have gotten so good at leveraging in that context that uh, it is difficult for me to believe that they would let that very useful tool go. And by useful, I mean useful tool in getting their attention and coercing them into compliance and into getting that whole fear and uncertainty uh, embedded inside of the licensee so that they can then go forward, whether it's for additional revenue or for putting in place new terms or whatever it is that they want to get out of the client. Uh, it is just too good of a tool for them to give up on. Uh, and, and if I may, I uh, obviously endorse everything said by Dean and Joel here, but um, I, I would just like to add that if, if you could almost view it as, as high stakes poker and the table is just loaded with chips, okay, uh, and the vendors aren't going to walk away from that sort of opportunity because if, 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 if you view it as poker and then the risks associated with that, um, the typical vendor going right into the audit uh, process, and Joel and I, along with Mike and Dean, have seen this in spades over the years. Um, 
they're immediately on their heels, it seems, for at least one, if not all of four different reasons. Um, one is the, the, audit, uh, the audit is invoked and the licensee needs to figure out what's my contract. That seems like a very threshold issue, but I think well over half of our engagements, the, the licensee client is scrambling to figure out what constitutes my contract, all right? That's uncertainty. And you pay to get rid of that kind of uncertainty. And that very much puts a licensee uh, on, on their heels. Uh, then even if the contract is found, uh, I should say is identified and found, um, there's, the, there's the issue of, well, what do the terms mean? Um, the meaning of terms is not something that necessarily is, is uh, uh, established by plain and ordinary reading of the contract. All sorts of legal issues can be triggered as to what the meaning of salient terms in a contract can be. Then there's the issue of enforceability. Sometimes what a vendor is trying to do is just not allowed under public uh, policy. Those sorts of issues also need to be identified, and certainly we have seen them front and center, depending on how aggressive a vendor may be. And then finally, the biggest issue of all uh, at the table is termination, uh, because it, it just is under the surface of all of the negotiations and discussions in and around an audit. Um, it's, it's capital punishment. Uh, the vendor can just simply say, you have no more rights uh, and you're off. Well, that just triggers a, a panoply of legal issues. So those uncertainties, those four uncertainties going into just anything related to an audit and a potential dispute immediately puts a licensee on its heels. So I just want to add one thing. When we, Dean and I entered the business, we realized very early on that legal is such an important aspect of this business. And one of the things that I find frustrating is I see software licensed consultants that act like they're practicing law. They're not lawyers. They don't understand the subtleties of these contracts. They're way over their head. In fact, we felt that legal was such an important aspect that we pre-baked it through our relationship with you in every engagement. And as that relationship has gotten stronger, what we've seen vendors like Oracle, Microsoft, ever, they use ambiguity in the contracts as a leverage to get more money from their customers, or they close an audit out, and all of a sudden there's a boomerang audit to catch the client because the client didn't realize they didn't thoroughly close the audit correctly. So to us, I find it interesting, you'd be a fool to go into an audit without strong legal counsel early on, it's frankly going to save you money. And more important, it's going to save you aggravation and surprises in the end. I completely agree with well, that. I, I think it's, it's very important. And, and, you know, the fact that we've got both, both sides, uh, you know, here on the podcast, I think represents that. Um, so, so Joel, have you got any, any thoughts on what Michael was saying? Look no further than Oracle's extra contractual policy statements. They throw up a partitioning policy. They throw up a cloud policy. They say on their face that for educational purposes only, that they're not to be integrated into a contract. Yet when you start interfacing with Oracle, they brandish those as if they were binding. They can't help themselves. They say it over and over again. And that itself is a quagmire. And oftentimes we're interfacing with uh, licensees 
who say, well, what about this policy? What does it mean about virtualization? How does this impact uh, our VMware? And um, you know, sometimes you have to uh, you, you just keep keep beating the horse. It's not part of your contract. It's not part of your contract. Your contract is the four corners of your master agreement, your ordering documents, and anything else ancillary to that. And that's a place where I think Oracle likes the uncertainty. I think Oracle thrives in it. And um, it really takes a particular kind of a, a discipline to beat it into uh, both Oracle and to the licensee about what their real obligations are and then what is just a lot of static and a lot of noise. So on that point, because you know, the Oracle virtualization rules are you know, a, a, a big uh, issue that everyone listening will be familiar with. Um, so what do you think is the reason that Oracle don't bake that into the the contracts you know if if they are if those are the rules and they and and that's what they say why don't they just make it a contractual document are you any thoughts on on why they do it that this way well my uh oh go ahead i'm sorry my my initial thought on that i'm sure there are diverse uh, perspectives on it but my initial thought is um they have so much already at stake based on the existing contracts and the arguments that they're making as to virtualization, which we uh, disagree with. But nonetheless, that virtualization is somehow or other captured under the current contracts. Their risk is that if they take the next generation of contracts and try to specify and then incorporate their legal position explicitly into a contract today, it puts at risk the contracts which don't reference virtualization and that very conduct by Oracle could be viewed in the event of a dispute as an admission that when the contract doesn't say uh, anything regarding virtualization that there are contentions that somehow other it's implied is all wet and that's why they had to change the contracts going forward. So I think by design, they're trying to stay away from that to preserve the argument with extant contracts and the revenue stream from them. By the way, it brings up a, an important point, which is conflicts of interest, right? Because a vendor or a licensed consultant that's aligned with the vendor is gonna be under pressure from the vendor to see those policies as binding. If they were trained by the vendor, they were trained that they're binding, even though they're not. But once again, they're not lawyers. And one of the things I like about the legal profession is the fact that they've done a good job of making sure that there are no conflicts of interest or that it's well documented. So, right, one of the things I always say to people is, at least if you're doing business with a vendor, a firm like Licensed Fortress or Beeman and much more, because of our relationship with you, there can be no divided loyalties, period. But you really have to understand these conflicts of interest because they're going to cost you a lot of money if you don't. I agree. I think, and then just to follow up on uh, on Art's uh, uh, absolutely true point about how that would be a bad look for Oracle to bake in the virtualization. I also think that they like catching their vendors. Or I'm sorry, their licensees flat-footed. It's the past due fees, past due uh, 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 service fees, and everything else that is part of the hammer that they bring down in the audit in order to try to course new licenses, new everything. And so they don't get necessarily the same $100 million uh, uh, shock and awe bill 
if it's baked in and people know what to look for and are taking care of it on the front end. I think it benefits Oracle for the licensee to wander into the audit and then get shocked by a bill and then have to negotiate from that point. And if they put it in front and center, they'll lose that at least with a, a large number of their licensees. That's interesting. So they're, they're kind of playing up almost to the, you know, the, uh, the style that they've got. I think some people assume that, that you know, Oracle and other vendors would, would rather be perceived, you know, in, in a, a nicer fashion and, and try and do things in a more friendly way. But it sounds like actually, I suppose once you've gone a certain way down this road, you might as well commit to it and um, and carry on to the to the to the final destination of it. Um, so so with with Oracle and and you know we're talking about the kind of traditional ITAM. Obviously, IT is changing with with cloud in particular. Um, and something I saw a couple of weeks ago with, with Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. They, they've added a new feature, which is a license manager for Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, which will track and identify all your bring your own license software that you use in the Oracle Cloud, and it will take care of all that for you, um, which on the face of it seems very nice. You know, tracking BOIR software can be difficult, and you know, who better? to understand Oracle licensing on Oracle Cloud than Oracle. Um, does anyone have any thoughts, you know, if you're an IT asset manager and you think, oh, do you know what, that will make my life a bit easier, um, do, do we think it actually will? I, I think in some sense, yes, it will, right? Uh, because since it's developed by the vendor, the integration with the other vendor products is, is quite good. Um, so we've had some customers who, who have explored that and used that, um, and it does a, a good job of integrating with the rest of Oracle Cloud for tracking purposes. But I think um, our point is, uh, is you have to be a little bit wary of who your trusted advisors are in this sense. And as Mike mentioned earlier, um, if you're using a vendor's tool like that, look at what the, the perspective that's baked into that tool, right? And so a lot of the things that we've seen out of that tool are that um, it, it's obviously very favorable to Oracle in there. The interpretations are the way Oracle interprets them. And I think our point would be that um, some of those interpretations are non-contractual um, based on policy. Um, some of those that, that are contractual have a very favorable interpretation from, from Oracle that might be more than what you get from an independent uh, assessment uh, in there. So, so it, uh, it does have some benefits, especially around the integration side of things. Um, but I think uh, that can often be outweighed by some of those interpretation problems um, and, and cause some customers to um, spend more than, than what they really need to. Let, let me, even... if I may, just just um, emphasize um, what Mike and Dean have identified regarding the uh, conflict of interest, the potential for divided loyalties, and then legal arguments. Um, legal arguments can be rather subtle uh, in terms of what's part of a contract, what's not part, what uh, what does a particular term mean? That meaning can actually change. 
you know, it's why God created lawyers to sort through that sort of thing. Well, if you've got someone with divided loyalties and the issue that comes up is one of legal construction, it's very easy for someone to just fall into a, a trap, you might say, uh, of their own making where they go, well, you know, as to the meaning of virtualization, and again, we're talking about a divided loyalty situation, um, Oracle's really kind of got a point there in terms of how they're construing that. Um, you know, you just, it, 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 you just shift a little bit and you're providing legal counseling where you shouldn't be. And you also have uh, divided loyalties. And then all of a, all of a sudden, to uh, Dean's and Mike's point, uh, you have a licensee truly at a disadvantage to the vendor because you have the vendor asserting its rights uh, pursuant to whatever its lawyers are telling uh, them to assert. And that's okay. That's fair play. But then you have, then you have the proverbial knife being brought uh, uh, to the gunfight on the part of the licensee. They're just sitting back and they're thinking, well, my own people are telling me there's merit to a legal argument that Oracle is asserting. Well, lawyers don't let legal arguments just stand there from the other side and say, well, got me on that one. You know, lawyers <laughs> parse the language. Lawyers look at the rights and obligations pursuant to the contracts and they defend the licensee. And that's what the licensee needs. And that's why the point that Dean and Mike are making about divided loyalties, it's just so, so major, so significant. And, and then you even have to take beyond that, you've got this legal aspect to the contracts, but you've also got the technology side, right? Oracle wants you to use more Oracle software, where if you take somebody who understands licensing, is backed by the lawyers, and then understands how technologies change and maps that to your business requirements, we can find ways to save you money that the vendor, frankly, would never make you aware of. For example, if you use DataGuard, it's wonderful technology, but you're using twice as many licenses than perhaps if you used a pure storage array to do your backups on. And so you really have to also then understand the technology and the business requirements and map the two together because maybe there's a more cost-effective way to get you the end result your business needs. And that's not gonna come from just somebody who was trained by the vendor to be a, uh, an auditor for licensing. Yeah, there's making sure you're not doing it wrong. And then there's making sure that you're doing it as well as possible. And, and there's always a, a gap between the two. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I used to be a reseller years ago and I know, you know, customers have a similar thing there as well. You know, if someone is making money from selling you licenses, will they always tell you, actually, if you do it this way, you only need to buy seven instead of 412, you know, whatever it might be. And, and I think it, it seems to be kind of, you know, times 10 when it comes to the publishers. Um so with something someone asked me the other day, actually, was in this sort of newer world, you know, if you're using a vendor's cloud and you're using their inbuilt tools to manage it, and this could be Oracle, it could be Microsoft, it could be Amazon, etc., and you are found to be non-compliant, does that give you any additional safety net or recourse to be able to say, well, it, you know, it's your software on your cloud. I was using your tools to manage it. It's 
much less my fault that I got it wrong than if it was all on premises. Is there any uh, you know weight to that argument at all? Well, I think it's a little bit both ways. So in one sense, yes, right? If you can point back to that in a negotiation, that's a, a, a point in your favor. And that can be used as a negotiation tool. But we've seen that from previous um, times before, you know, clouds were prevalent in there where you were using a vendor's product and you might have had the vendor's consultants come in to help you implement the product. And they put you in a compliance scenario. And so you can use that as an argument but, but I think the problem with it, what we've seen is that the vendors are acutely aware of how they're phrasing the non-compliance. And those are the, the, what we see more of is that issue is brought up where the vendor says, oh, that's right, our tool says it, but you're using it for a different purpose than what you're allowed for. And they make a different point in that, that kind of negates the tool being incorrect because you're using something outside of the tool and that's what the vendor is, is bringing up as a compliance issue. And so we've seen that um, be quite prevalent, especially around clouds and, 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 and the, the licensing compliance within those clouds. Um, and so that becomes a, a, a problem in there that kind of negates the advantage you might have from, from the vendor's tool being in use. So one perhaps needs to be even more careful in, in, in those scenarios than, than previously. Um, I think what you're saying about using the vendors consultants and things, uh, I remember so was it tail end of last year, the, the Oracle versus Envisage case where they were using it on, on Amazon uh, incorrectly. And I, I, I remember seeing in there that there was a, you know, oh, well, we asked Amazon if it was okay. And they said, yes, so we, so we did it. Um, but of course, you know, point, you know, clause 10.1, I think it was in, in the, in the Amazon T's and C's tells you that you can't, um, do you see, you know, do you see slash, do you think that with all the technology changes that's going on, uh, you know, customers and organizations perhaps are less familiar with, you know, the new technologies and things. And is that maybe putting them at more risk of, of making these mistakes where they, you know, they, they trust people and they, they go along with things uh, and maybe don't do the same due diligence that they would have done five years ago for a big on-premises purchase. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably very much the case. And then you add into the fact that um, a lot of these contractual requirements are incorporated by URL or buried in these, you know, 100 page uh, end user license agreements um, in their click throughs, what what have not, it becomes very complex for customers to navigate in there. And uh, a lot of times with these vendors, because of the, the business critical nature of the applications, um, as Art mentioned, you know, termination is a very real uh, concern at the at the outcome of these. Um, uh, with the nature of these applications and the dollar figures involved, I, I do think it requires a lot of care, extra care um, that, that is kind of the opposite of how easy it is to use some of these um, newer applications and methods of procurement. There's, there's a certain um, folly almost built into the notion. And it, un unfortunately, it's the state of the market and what 
certainly licensed fortress and Beeman and much more are trying to do is level the playing field. But too often we see before we're engaged and we're looking at the at the communications uh, uh, just as we enter a matter, we see the the um, uh, the licensee client asking the vendor. Uh, well, what does this mean in the contract? And hey, we're out in the cloud now, you know, what are our rights and obligations? Well, if you want to adopt a sports metaphor here, and if we were playing a football game, it'd be like you're on offense and you go to the defense, you say, so tell me, what play do you think we should run here? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you have to appreciate the uh, intrinsic adversarial nature to an audit. I'm not saying it's all out war and it doesn't need to be necessarily antagonistic, uh, but it's adversarial. They have their own set of interests. We can guarantee you they have lawyers weighing in on legal issues, even if those lawyers are not interfacing with the licensee. Uh, and then you have the licensee uh, typically on a playing field that's imbalanced. And all we're trying to do here with by identifying the the, the technical ex expertise, which is essential, especially with evolving technologies, and then the ability to curate the documents and advise accordingly, which is what lawyers do. Uh, we're not trying to trick anyone. We're certainly not trying to get away with something uh, as to the vendors. We're just trying to level the playing field. Uh, they have legal arguments. We want to make sure our clients have legal arguments. Now, whether ultimately those legal arguments go to war uh, in front of an arbitration, pa arbitration panel, excuse me, or a court of law remains to be seen. But you have to have countervailing legal arguments in order to level that uh, playing field. And do you think that the relationship between ITAM and, and legal within customers should be better than it is you know if, if we're talking about the traditional approach i think i would wager uh, the traditional approach tends to be try not to talk to the lawyers until <laughs> you really really have to and then you when you think you really have to it's already too late and and do, do you, you know if we're trying to advocate for a new way of, of doing things do you think uh, a more uh, you know, an earlier relationship, a closer relationship between them would be beneficial for, for everyone. It's ironic that if you have an employee issue, the first thing you do is you run to the lawyers. Yet your exposure in a software licensing issue is far larger than the typical employment issue. I, 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 it just blows my mind, given the dollars that can be involved with the cost of software, why they should be attached to the lawyers at the hip. It's why at Licensed Fortress, we attach ourselves to Beeman and much more in every engagement. We feel it's that critical. It was one of the first investments we made in our business. So yes, I think ITM has to start rethinking this saying, my God, if I get this wrong, I'm going to be going to my CFO saying to write a check for tens of millions of dollars. I'm going to be unemployed if I don't attach myself to the lawyers. So yes, I strongly feel like that's, and in fact, we put our money where our mouth is because we made sure that was part of every engagement we do. I, I well, look, another way to think about it is that Oracle Legal has been involved before your audit notice even started, whether it's in putting together the contracts, putting together the policy statements, or whatever the unwritten audit script is. 
So uh, you, matching that isn't waiting for Oracle to put its lawyers front and center. It is walking into the whole uh, uh, entanglement, again, be it an audit, a EULA certification, or whatever it is, with attorney thinking in order to counteract what Oracle has already put into place with its attorney thinking, attorney trap. That whole minefield needs to be navigated. Yeah. It's a great analogy, the minefield, right? You're getting the lawyers involved early, so you really don't need the lawyers at the end when it gets very expensive. You're getting the lawyers involved early to avoid the minefields because they're out there. If you just walk forward, you're just going to step into one and it's going to be very costly for your organization. Well, and to follow up on that, Joel and I spent decades litigating cases. And we can tell you that at the end of the day, whether the case settled or went to jury verdict, we could sit back and look and point our finger to something on the timeline that said, if only they had talked to a lawyer at that intersection, at that juncture, they're in, they, the entire history of the company would have been different. And these disputes where we're specializing now can be easily of, of that import. Uh, a lot is on the line. And what we hope we can be part of is a change in the market and the level of awareness that the market should have going into these. We're not uh, lawsuit happy. We're not trying to you know, antagonize things with a vendor. Uh, as, as we've been pointing out now throughout this podcast, we're just trying to level the playing field. If someone is going into uh, a given contentious situation uh, with the support of a legal team, you should have a lawyer too. That's almost axiomatic. We think about a click-through contract, how simple it is for a vendor, an unscrupulous vendor, to change that and then come back. And in fact, wasn't there an example uh, you talked about of a vendor that tried to collect millions of dollars after they made a change to a click-through contract? Why wouldn't you have a lawyer look at that before you accepted the terms? Yeah, I mean, click-through click contracts are coming up more and more in conversations that we're seeing. You know, we had a few conversations about them at our EMEA conference last week. Uh, and I think there's definitely some uncertainty and confusion about you know how binding they are and do they supersede every contract that you've signed before and you know if if your policy is that the CIO has to sign a contract but a click through was done by you know Tony in in sales you know are, are they of equal importance all this kind of thing and it is very difficult, I think, for, for IT asset managers to to find the answers to these because nine times out of 10, the person that you're talking to about it will be the vendor. And they will tell you that the click-through EULA is the most important document in the world. And, you know, oh, you've clicked it. Don't don't even bother trying to, to, to talk to us about it, etc. So I, I think, you know, the, what you're all doing, trying to, to advocate for legal involvement sooner and, and having that conversation, I guess, so that internally, even if you're not in an audit, going and talking to your legal team and saying, do you know what, I've heard about click-through agreements, et cetera, let's have this conversation now, just as you were saying, Michael, about before you get to the minefield, you know, let's understand it, let's look through our contracts, and then should something occur, we all know where we stand. 
I think more of that would, would surely be beneficial for, for, for everyone. Um, you know, IT asset managers, the legal teams, the senior leadership, I suppose the only people it wouldn't necessarily help would be the vendors. Well, you know, to be clear, uh, and, and I'm not prepared to discuss under American law the legal consequences of a click-through uh, contract. There's been a fair amount of litigation out there on it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, a click-through contract is somewhat akin to a Vegas wedding in that <laughs> I'm not saying it's unenforceable or it doesn't count, but it's problematic. And if, if you have a vendor that's standing on a click through a contract, my response to that is all the more reason to get really good legal counseling, because there has been litigation on the enforceability of those terms. Uh, we had a case a few years back um, that had a, it wasn't a click through contract, but it was click through consent. And we litigated whether clicking through, you had actually provided consent to the disclosure of your private data. We said no, and the court and jury agreed. So those issues are out there. Uh, but you hear click through, like I said, just think Vegas wedding. You, got, <laughs> you, you, you need to sort through a lot there. I like that. that that's a, a really good analogy. Um, yeah. But so the stakes on those click through agreements are what's changing so much. Uh, you know, Oracle will have the click-throughs, but I'm not aware of any instance where Oracle has attempted to change the operative master agreement going backwards based on a click-through. And that's absolutely what MicroFocus and what Quest were doing and what they actually, uh, you know, sued Nike and some other people over is not just changing terms going forward and then not just uh, uh, changing for some of the agreements but replacing an existing master agreement with a new and more restrictive one. And that goes back to our whole theme about uh, how are we uh, uh, handling our, our IP assets? Well, risk management is part of it, and the stakes are going up and up. And I think some of those two-tier two vendors are the ones that are really upping those stakes in a way that we have to be paid attention to. Yeah, I think pretty much everything I've been referring to, I've been thinking about, question micro focus uh so so yeah i, I completely agree there yeah well, well and i think it's great that they were getting a comeuppance but uh micro i believe it was micro focus that just sold and so they uh they got bought by venture capital they put in place all of these extremely unpopular and uh, draconian uh, policies and they quadrupled in value over a five or six year period and sold again so there's not a lot in the market right now that's uh, uh, guiding them not to be undertaking these policies. And Joel, I think you're you're 100% correct that we haven't seen the the tier one vendors take some of these uh, other strategies that are in place, but we have seen them um, start to leverage a little bit of the different tactics. I mean, Oracle with with Java um, is taking a different approach than what we've seen previously to them now that they're actually doing audits in there, but um, a lot of customers who are using Java and Java only, only have that click-through contract in there um, that Oracle's relying on. So it, it's not, definitely not the same um, in there, but Oracle's kind of picking uh, picking pieces and some of the other tier one vendors are, are seeing, the, like you said, the <coughs> um, revenue growth that can happen because of it. And so they are incorporating some of these other tactics, I think, into their uh, audit process. 
Well, and of course, not to mention uh, a lot of damage can be done uh, with pen and paper as well. I mean, an mm-hmm. ordering document can land that introduces an entirely new master agreement, but yet nonetheless is signed by somebody somewhat innocuously because they've always signed ordering documents. So you don't have to be on the internet in order to catch somebody flat-footed by sneaking in a new agreement. So should end-user organizations, because that's a really good point, should should they implement some sort of process that says, you know, I mean, I guess saying every order document goes through legal, some might see that as being too onerous, but should, should there be some sort of process that says, you know, if it's of X value or if it's X amount of time since we last signed something with this company, so they're likely to have changed things, you know, under certain conditions, it should go through legal first. Would that solve some problems? Well, I, 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 um, I can tell you that uh, uh, it would, but I would even take it a step further. I would just say in this space, you could almost view it like real estate. Can you imagine anyone just signing a contract that says, hey, guys, uh, we just bought a building in Seattle and some of the, did our lawyers look at it? No, but you know, I'm, I'm in procurement. Uh, I mean, that would be unthinkable. Uh, my, my view is that everything should be channeled through competent counsel. Uh, you're, no matter what you don't, you may think you're just on an ordering document um, acquiring another 30, $40,000 worth of technology. Uh, but what you could be, uh, uh, doing is acquiring thirty to forty thousand dollars more of technology, and giving up some rights or assuming other obligations. Uh, that it screams for counseling on the interplay with the master agreement, for instance. So uh, I would just take it a step further and just say, hey, if they're signing anything um, with these vendors, lawyers need to look at it. And we get from the the IT asset management and the procurement side why. Um, that might seem like overkill, right? And, and you're consolidating renewals. You're trying to make this easier in terms of your own process. And now you're going to introduce a hurdle to make it more difficult. I think what we're trying to emphasize is why it's important to have that hurdle. But also, if you look at the difference between expertise around it, that can come into play too, right? If you have to do this internally and you're only looking at one contract a year, that's probably going to take a little bit of time to figure out how all of these things interplay and what you're supposed to be aware of, right? If you're working with experts in this area who look at these contracts on a weekly or daily basis, they know exactly where the changes are, what the pitfalls are, what you need to have changed, and can approve it probably with very little obstacle introduced into the process. It might be, you know, a day turnaround time less. So <clears throat> I think our big point is that it, it's too important not to have um, these issues review, reviewed, um, but also that, that uh, getting experts around this and this particular um, uh, software license compliance um, arena is crucial as well. That's a really good point about um, using, you know, an expert to, to to be able to do it faster. Because I think that from some of the things I've heard and I've spoken to people, that is the problem that, you know, your internal legal team are, you know, that they're busy doing other things. They're they're not software licensing, you know, lawyers in in most cases. So it, it might take, 
you know, weeks before it, it comes around and, you know, you're being told if it's not in by month end, you know, you lose the discount or you lose the deal and, you know, you can't wait for them and da, da, da. So, so that's an interesting point that, that finding a, you know, a, a managed service or, or, you know, whatever it might be to, to enable you to do the due diligence at speed is, um, I think that's probably quite a useful takeaway for a lot of people. Um, well, and, and it's a consciousness raising um, that we pointed out at the uh, inception of this podcast that, you know, uh, it, it, no legal department, no matter how big the corporation typically can handle the full array of legal issues. They go outside. There's something in the antitrust space that they, re, they, they, they seek expertise for the counseling there or Mike's earlier analogy, unemployment. Yeah, they will go outside. There needs to be that sort of discipline within law departments and IT departments that, hey, look, there are resources out there where we can get someone who's utterly familiar with this terrain and the contracts, and they can do uh, in uh, two hours what it would take uh, an unfamiliar technical or legal person in-house maybe days to conquer. Uh, but that's really no different than any other expertise. People do it all the time. Um, it's just a matter of raising the level of awareness that we're in a space where there is risk to my company and it can be significant risk. And you just go outside and you talk to the right people. Uh, and then again, you level the playing field. And, and just on top of that, we found for a lot of customers that a gate in there was actually just a good sanity check. Um, people sometimes get just into the routine process of, oh, you know, this is the renewal. Uh, I, I know I need it. Go ahead and sign it and go forward. I think we've demonstrated why there's some problems that can happen with that. But just in general, you know, if, if, if the vendors are tacking on three, four, 5% increases each year, uh, you can very quickly have these prices grow quite a bit. And we've seen customers who, by just renewing year after year, they're actually paying more than list price for some of these renewals, despite getting a good discount, you know, a decade ago. So yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons why it's, it's beneficial to kind of put a little bit of a pause in there. You obviously don't want it to be delayed where it impacts business operations, right? If it takes weeks or months, that's a problem. Uh, but having it so it's not just a formal and automatic uh, process each year uh, can be beneficial for customers too, in addition to what we've talked about um, around these hidden obstacles and landmines that can be sitting there. And, and Dean, that's such an important point. We looked at that renewal and said, wait a minute, why are they paying that much for the software? Right? The customer looked at it and said, oh, I'm getting this great discount. <laughs> right? And, and by the way, in defense of the procurement officer, they're really busy, right? They're doing lots of different companies. That's not tip of the tongue knowledge or expertise we immediately zeroed in on it and said, okay, we need to rethink this renewal. Yeah. And again, it goes to, to what, what we were saying earlier that, you know, if that's the only renewal that you see for that product and you see it every three or four years, you pro probably don't know what list price is or how far above it or below it you are. And, and yeah, I think the, you know, We've mentioned it a few times, like you know, level level in the playing field, um, using people who have the expertise at the right times, uh, and I think I think maybe you know that the, the traditional approach has perhaps been for ITAM to to try and do it all, 
trying to do it all internally and, and themselves. And then, you know, inevitably things are missed, etc. So, so maybe, you know, the, this idea of the traditional approach no longer being good enough, you know, part of that is knowing when to use relevant third parties, you know, and, and maybe in a boutique style. So it's not a case of, you know, bringing in a, an outsourcer to do everything on a 10-year contract and that brings with it, you know, its own issues. It's the right, where am I? Pinch points, where do I not have the time? Where do I not have the skills? And identifying, you know, people such as yourselves who can, you know, come in, you know, pinch hitters almost, you know, they, they come in, they do that job really well, and um, and then you, you can move on. I think I think that is part of the new approach. Well, and even the other thing, when the vendor says, hey, let's make all these licenses coterminous. So we only have to do this once a year or once every three years. Making sure they understand you do gain all your licenses are coterminous, but you also lose a capability when you want to resize your organization and not get penalized by the policy. In, in Oracle's case, it's the Oracle repricing policy. IBM has the equivalent policy designed to prevent you from obviously lowering your footprint with the vendor. Yeah, that's that's always a favorite one now. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious we could probably stay here for at least another eight or nine hours. Um, I, I've got loads of other questions that I could ask and, and, and points to, to bring up, but I think we will have to save some of them for, for the future. Um, so to to put each of you on the spot now which which is always everyone's favorite way of ending anything um so we've come into this with the idea that the traditional approach to itam is no longer good enough each of you what would you say is the kind of you know if the listeners are going to do one thing after after listening to this you know what what should it be um so i will go to to michael first so I would tell them that they should be proactive and really, if they've never done it, have some outside expert come in and do an audit of their existing compliance. Because if we can find a software compliance issue before an official audit, it's very easy to correct it. So when the audit happens, uh, there's, uh, it didn't, it, the vendor doesn't detect it and it saves them a lot of money. So getting in compliance is the most important thing you can do proactively. Cool, I like that. Um, uh um, I'll try to uh, be as pithy as possible in light of the very, very good uh, perspective uh, uh, offered by Mike. Uh, and uh, two words, slow down. Um, just slow down in these transactions, slow down in terms of all that's being uh, uh, propounded to you by the vendor and uh, get your uh, technical and legal house in order. It's important. And I, what we have seen too often, and especially engagements that come along after uh, the problem has surfaced, is, is they just didn't take the time. Uh, where we're confident they're taking the time in other transactions for whatever reason, uh, it's not occurring in this space. And uh, 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 to, to Mike's point, take the time uh, to deal with the compliance issues talk with the lawyers and talk with the technical people a little on the front end goes a long ways. Slow down. Always good advice. Uh, Dean. 
Oh, I think Dean, I think we might have lost him. He's got the California freeze right now. There he is, Dean. Still there. There we go. You're back. Uh, (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, I I want to echo exactly what Mike and Art said. Um, I guess I would just add to it, in addition to to slowing down, um, take a look at the the big picture. Look at the forest um, and not just the trees. Um, There might have been decisions that were made years or decades ago um, that no longer hold true. And so if you take a step back and take a look at the big picture, um, there might be legal, technical uh, optimizations that can be had that would be very beneficial for your organization. Really good advice. It's getting away from that, oh, well, we've, we've always done it this way. We've always renewed this. Um, I think that, and those two things go together. Slowing down should enable you to be able to do that a little bit more easily, I think. Um, and then last, but by no means least, uh, Joel. <laughs> Have an attorney on speed dial. Uh, could be external, could be internal. Uh, we actually work with a lot of uh, in-house counsel who know these issues. They're, they're, they've been educated. They know the status of the licenses, and they're good go-tos. If you can find somebody internal and train them, that's great. If not, find somebody external who's already trained. But having somebody in mind who keeps up with your licenses so that you are not in the process of educating somebody every time you have a small question come up. Have a go-to guy, gal, anybody on speed dial, and uh, that'll solve a lot of your problems. Excellent. I like it. So I think for for people, um, th- those four points coupled with everything else that we've spoken about, that should hopefully get people in a, a much better space than, than they perhaps already are. Um, and I think for me, I would, I would add, don't be scared of your internal legal team. The, the, the lots of times, you know, people are worried about going talking to them because they're, you know, they're, they're concerned they'll get in trouble for doing something or not doing something. But I think ultimately, you know, you're all on the same side and you will, you will help each other by working more closely together. Um, so, so with that, um, I want to say thank you to the, the four of you. This has been a thoroughly enjoyable podcast. We, we've touched on all sorts of topics, many of which we could probably spin off into their own Netflix-style series as well, I think. Um, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to see what we can do there. But, yeah, thank you to all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone out there listening to this. Uh, I hope you found it as as interesting and enjoyable as I have. Certainly any questions that you've got about any of this, you know, get in touch with us at ITAM Review and we can can put you in touch with any of the speakers. I'm sure, you know, LinkedIn is always good as well for connecting with people. Um, So if, if it does raise any questions or concerns or thoughts, et cetera, let us know. And with that, I will, uh, yeah, thank you again to, to those of you joining me. Thank you to everyone listening. And I look forward to seeing you all on the next one. So thank you very much. Thanks again. <laughs>